decoded. Welcome to Founders Decoded. Delighted in this episode to talk to Gian Zira. Gian um, left Octopus Ventures in 2020 to start his own venture, helping early stage founders and investors uh, connect, raise capital, and evaluate each other. Um, delighted to talk to Gian because he has an enormous amount of experience looking at a variety of deal flow in this space and therefore has a lot of perspective and insight into how this space is changing and whether the founder tech ideas that we've been exploring this podcast are valid in his experience and on his radar. So Gian, delighted to have you on the podcast. Thank you. And um, yeah, you are, let's just, I think you, you're overseas at the moment. If you're, you're somewhere nice and hot, although it is hot here as well. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yes, I am. I'm currently in Indonesia, in the island of Bali, trying to escape the the overcast weather of England as much as I can. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you want to maybe like, do you want to go back to that moment? Um, or, or, or just, do you want to talk about briefly um, your experience at Octopus, which is a major sort of VC firm and kind of like the type of deal flow you, that you saw and then why you left to do the work that you're doing? Like, what, what were you seeing there that made that, made that leap? Sure. Yeah. So I, I did love my time at Octopus. I, I have nothing bad to say about the fund. Um, for me, it was really, it's a journey that's been over 10 years for me to get to that point. Um, I spent the last decade plus thinking I was going to be a VC backed founder again and build, you know, with my ego still there, you know, a billion dollar company and and, and earn hundreds of millions, et cetera, in, in sales. But it was actually my time during Octopus in which I was able to meet some of the best founders in Europe who have gone on to build unicorn uh, companies, who've been able to build companies that sell for 100, 200, 300 million dollars, um, as well as seeing all the founders that didn't succeed, as well as all the founders that you know we didn't invest into who weren't as maybe not necessarily as good, or even I didn't think they were as good, obviously, because I've made many wrong decisions. And what I realized and was looking at all of these types of people that I've met and all of the people that I've seen that have succeeded. And then looking at my myself personally and, and, and my type of personality and the way I like to work and what I really want to do day to day in the process, one of the biggest things I realized, which was actually really hard for me because of that decade long journey, which I thought was going to be back to a VC back founder was that I wasn't the I wasn't the person that was I'm not the type of person that should be a successful VC backed founder. I don't have that personality type. I don't have, you know, what, what I call a North star of, of, of one vision of trying to change the world. And, you know, I probably get to series a and then probably want to quit and I, I don't have the resilience. So for me, it was actually really kind of a, a kind of like a midlife quarter life crisis for me to be like, wow, I'm, um, all this kind of my whole career journey to of, of how I've got to this point is actually, basically completely changed the way of thinking so that's why I took kind of six months off after Octopus to really see what I wanted to do and during that time I was just helping founders because I love speaking to my favorite part of VC was speaking to founders and just helping them so I spent six months just helping founders for free and honing it just helping them as much as I can from my experience as a, a VC backed founder and then also um, as a VC obviously at Octopus and one of the things we honed into was fundraising and, and how I could help them there and 
just just to ask the question, what is it that uh, fundamentally you enjoy about talking to founders? And, and, and if we can kind of refine the question even further, what particular type of founder do you enjoy talking to the most? Yeah, so I'm, I'm very much a future thinking person. And one of the reasons why I got into technology, one of the reasons why I wanted to be a VC-backed founder is I always knew that, and I still believe that innovation is the best way that we can improve the human you know, nature and, and the human, um, you know, ability to do anything we want in our lives. So for me, innovation was always at the forefront of everything we do as a human race in improving and bettering whatever we do. So that's why I love speaking to founders the most. Well, I started with that, in fact, um, there's also the second part, which I'll say, but uh, the, the foundation is always just speaking to founders about the future that they want to portray and how they're going to do it. That's always made me the most excited and, and, and why I love speaking to founders. I think the second point is, which is kind of there as well, which is something that I've, you know, especially now going back into being a founder, which I kind of hadn't done for three years, but it, it's really talking about, frankly, the hardships of entrepreneurship and, you know, the volatility of it as well. So in the same day, you can be going from, oh my God, this is the best thing ever and we're going to completely change the world to within an hour, this is going to fail, no one wants this to back to the kind of top end and how you can kind of see yourself from that short-term thinking day-to-day or week-to-week to then thinking about the long-term or what's happened in the last six to 12 months and how you've grown and that kind of mental resilience that comes from that, I, th- I find really interesting and I love speaking to founders about how they're getting past that. So one of the points that comes up again and again, particularly when talking to investors, is there is this there's this kind of contradiction that investors that you know invest from a position of good faith and have that curiosity and genuinely you know enjoy talking to founders who are thinking differently and who have the agility to reimagine problem spaces and innovate in the way that you have which is essentially i think the, dis- the distinction between a startup and a traditional company is is fundamentally yep. those abilities right that's that, that that's really what you're backing what, but what comes up is, is that a lot of investors say they want to find identify back founders at that stage and recognize getting in early and support is where a lot of the best work is going on, goes on, which is why I'm hearing you say. But then they also want them put this demand on founders to be able to produce the metrics, the revenue of product mm-hmm. market fit, which is a massive contradiction because generally those founders are pre-revenue. And therefore, if you're trying to assess them for their exceptionalism and, and the behaviors in, in terms of kind of the things that you've been describing, generally, you're not going to get a good steer and read if you tr- then try and put them through the metrics of Product market fit, revenue, customer lifetime. Yeah. How do you square that circle? Like, how? What, what, what's your view on that? So, I, I completely agree with what you're saying. For especially Europe, I don't think it's the same in the US. I think European investors, and that's one of the reasons why Europe is not as good. There's a multitude of other reasons in terms of from a policy and government point of view. But one of the biggest things from the culture of European investors is that, right? They're a seed investor, but they want you to have, you know, some type of revenue. It makes no sense. Um, so, I do agree with you on that point. Um, if they're not that type of investor, which I just think is, I just think is bad, and I agree with you. Um, I would say I would say two things, right? What the first one is, you've got to realize what it's like to be an investor, right? And the day to day of what you're having, right? You've got a thousand different companies coming at you probably every six months. Yep. Um, of those a thousand, probably five hundred are 
crap. They're never they're not VC backstories. They're you know the the pitch deck itself is horrible. Uh, the founder doesn't really portray it, and it could be a really good idea, but it doesn't portray it in the right way. It's really complex. Um, yeah. Doesn't get into it right. And then they're all in different types of industries. Even you know I was a health investor. Even then I I was you know doing multiple different industry. If it, whether it's types, whether it's comorbidities, whether it's um, you know all of these kind of areas, as well as being high level. And then you've got all of the different activities you have to do. So your internal KPIs, you've got your portfolio you need to do, you've got your, um, you know, you're speaking at an event that week, you've got, you know, something in the portfolio that's going bad, you've got your one-to-ones of your meetings, you've got general kind of internal politics that you've got to deal with, you've got a deal that's about to be done. Um, there's, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, buying Patagonia jackets, as I like to laugh about. <laughs> but, but you know, so there's so, all this kind of stuff Right. So what I would what I always say is when a founder, when an investor rejects you and says, oh, it's because of the market size or it's because of the you need more revenue. And again, this is the founders, the investors that aren't just you need revenue, except, you know, just generally, which is just a bad culture of an investor and they shouldn't be doing seed rounds. Um, one of the biggest things I say is, do you actually believe what they said there? And have you actually kind of talked to them or is that just come from an email? Because I saw it myself. I did it myself as, a, as an investor. Um, when you've got so many of these companies coming to you and you've got to reject, you know, I had a pile, I'd have, I'd have piles of like, you know, 15 to 20 investor uh, founders that I had conversations with or I had to saw their pitch deck, which I have to reject on like a Thursday or a Friday. I know I was never doing it on a Friday. That's really rude, right? Just getting the weekend, you get rejected. It was always like Wednesday or Thursday, I'd do it. Um, where it's really, you know, and you're having to go through this massive list of things where it does get, and and it's really hard to tell someone that you've just met, that you don't believe in them. You don't believe deep down that they're the right person to do this. So you always just give them generic rejections, right? And I think that's a big dichotomy and a problem, right, is, which is missing, is that it's partly the founder's fault and it's partly the investor's fault where, the investor doesn't give it enough time to founders to give them the ability to show that they're actually going to be able to succeed and execute. And there's also an amalgamation of different stuff like unconscious bias, for example, for underrepresented founders where they only, you know, they only invest into white males, yep. for example. Yep. Um, and then the second point is the founders themselves, right? I, 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 I work with founders all the time and, and I've, I've speaking to founders most, even the most founders, most of the founders I was an investor, like 90% of them and probably around the same that I speak to have horrible pitch decks with that are not concise, that don't tell the story in the right way, that don't show why they're the best. And when they're actually having the conversations with investors, they're, you know, boring. They don't tell the future and the vision of what they're trying to do and then get angry about that. But you know, so I think it's on both sides. I think they, there needs to be a convergence of showing an ability to show that the founder is better, basically, um, and give and give the ability for founders to get proper proper feedback that it's them that's the problem, not their market size or that they need product market fit as seed, um, which you know is bullshit. 
do you do you then buy into the sort of core premise of founder tech that actually if we can have a lot of tools that help mediate that conversation obviously it always comes down to the dynamic between the founder and the investor it's a people driven yeah. business right it's absolutely you, you, if you get rid of that then you're in a very bad spot uh, you're, you're creating more problems for yourself than we currently got yeah uh, you don't want to do that you don't want to i think maybe having ai making investment decisions large but maybe at certain aspects but you it's fundamentally people driven and that's also part of the real excitement and charm of the whole space right but do you agree that we could have much much better tools that re-engineer a lot of the things that those that dynamic that interpersonal dynamic is not doing very well um and and not serving anyone that that, that that's a fundamental premise of this actually that if we put new tools in place that kind of got out of the way but just facilitated this so we talked to for example to like landscape vc who i think you know the guys there you know and yeah just that, that idea of glass door for vcs and having transparency and having feedback that seems just like a really good idea right and founders on both sides when they have an excellent experience reporting in on that reporting in on this investor really understands this sector and you know at this stage in a really good like 100 do you, do you agree that those tools are needed and, and and add a lot of value and kind of get rid of the things or the inefficiencies that don't add any value 100 percent right and um you know anything that you can use as a tool to aid your investment and like you said give you an ability to um you know actually make better decisions on this kind of stuff 100 percent. but like you said it has to be a tool it can't be the one thing that everyone uses and they won't um because at the end of the day like you said this is a people's business and and this is the problem with investing as a whole right it's still based around feelings and as much as you can use the data points and you know all this other stuff about what the company's going to happen in the future um it's still around the feeling of i want to you know, put money into this founder, I want to invest into this founder, and I want to spend the next seven to 10 years on a board chatting to this founder every day, or every week or whatever it is. Um, and that's fundamentally what investing is, right? So I, I agree, I think they need they need there can be better tools. And I, I think, I think historically, this industry has just not been innovated. In, and it's, it's, I've always found it funny, because VCs have loads of money at under management. They have loads of you know money from management fees. They're in the industry of innovation, but I've seen it internally, not just at Octopus, but even other VC funds that I spoke to. They're just really scared of innovation themselves. Yeah. <laughs> and um, that's why, and, and this industry, and you can see it, this industry has not changed since the 70s. So like 50 years. And I've always found it really funny. And maybe that's... Um, decision what's it called fatigue where they've got so many divisions of innovation they don't want to think of themselves or you know there's the reason why they're a vc and not a founder is because they don't want to innovate but um i do think there is needed innovation in it 100 i think this is a fundamental point that you, it, it is completely um makes no sense at all it's ironic that you're dealing with an industry that fundamentally has no problem you know disrupting or changing in a model of any legacy industry but when it comes to its own legacy finds it incredibly mm. difficult <laughs> and that, that but I, I think sorry go i think you're seeing it i think you are seeing it now right and, and maybe not in terms of the decisions they make with founders which i think there is a little bit there but nowhere near as much as it can be done but you're seeing it now right like historically deal flow really came from just personal connections and you know who you know basically and that's still partly that but now founders vcs especially they're starting to realize that no i need to get bigger on linkedin i need to get better, bigger on twitter i need to you know, build my founder brand as a VC that makes me, has that ability, right? So you're seeing it in the kind of external way of VCs. 
It's just wondering if they do it more on the internal side. Yeah. Okay. So some a couple of couple of direct questions then. Would you uh, continue to use the pitch deck if there was an alternative that was better? Like, would you do you think the format of the pitch deck is a good tool? And you said earlier, uh, do you think the product market fit should be kept out of particularly let's say pre seed investment as as a as a as a filter or a frame? I mean, yeah, so it depends what you mean by product market fit, right? If you mean actual product market fit, then yeah, of course, because you're a seed round. You're not meant to have product market fit. But um, product market fit plays a part within a seed round just on the process of even if, you know, it's a good investor and he's not thinking the product market fits the th- reason we'll invest or not. Um, purely on the aspect of everything you ever talk about in your about your company in a startup when you're going for investment and you're speaking to an investor is not actually about your company. It's about you as the founder, right? So everything you talk about in your company is indirectly just about, I'm the founder that can do this, right? And I'm that's why you should back me. So I don't think product market fit should just be culled. It should be more about aspects of, rather than saying, I found product market fit, it's these are the steps that make product market fit inevitable. For example, you know, right. I've done this date, I've done this data point and the ROI you know, the ROI for the, my customer are paying £10 a month on me, but they make £500 a month extra. I've spoken to these five people um, and there's a letter of intent or, you know, close to letter of intent yeah. because the ROI makes complete yeah. sense, right? That shows that it's not necessarily product market fit, you have it, but it's just showing that like, wow, okay, product market fit's inevitable. It's going to happen. Like, I'm not worried about that. That's my biggest, because you've got to remember what, what a seed round is, right? A seed round is just money to get you to series A. So they're thinking of if I put one, two, three million pounds or whatever it is into this seed round, will that money in two years time get them to product market fit? So can I just ask you, is that the is that the is that the fundamental driver that's informing or metric that's informing a VC decision, a C state? Because that would be really valuable to, to know. Is that is that in your experience what's driving that decision? 100 percent one of them. The VCs think of two things, right? So the foundation is always the founder, right? So do I believe the founder can do this? Um, But yes, fundamentally, the VC is thinking two things when they invest, right? The first one, everyone knows, do I believe this company can exit for a massive sum and return my fund or return me loads of money if you're an angel investor, right? The second one, which isn't talked about for some reason, I don't know why, which is as as important, maybe slightly less, is do I believe that the money that they're, they're putting in can get to the next stage, right? And you're seeing it so much now with, you know, seed plus rounds or or bridge rounds, for example, yeah. where founders raise seed round, they mess up, they don't get the product market fit, and then they need to raise this bridge round, and then that completely ruins their startup story. Um, so yeah, it is definitely a, a big part of um, a seed round is, do I believe this founder can get to product market fit? So it's not, you don't need it, you can be pre-launch even, and I've invested into pre-launch seed rounds, right, um, where they didn't launch. But the 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 data that they showed us and this and the work they did in the background and to get to a point of where they were launching, I was like, well, when they launch, they're going to be, you know, they're going to be making loads of money. They, they, that's fine. I'll use an example, Skin and Me, which we, you know, I, I led as a, in their seed round. Um, it was a very large seed round. I'm not going to say the number because it it was crazy how big the the round got. Sure. But um, but they they were pre-launched when I invested into them as a seed round, right? But they had um, they were basically what they're doing is an acne treatment, um, but personalised for each person. So and then uh, different strengths with a actual pharmacist, right? Um, 
So they showed the go-to-market, they had amazing marketing people, they had um, an ex-person at Grays who built all of the, who's actually now the CEO, who um, built all of the internal kind of uh, production of Grays. So he was pretty much just going to do the same thing there. They literally had like all of the mock-ups of how that first factory was going to work. Um, they had all of the kind of testing of all of the um, marketing that they were going to do before launch, etc. They had all of this sorted to a point of where when, when we were investing into them and, and we Octopus led the round and I led the round, I was like, well, yeah, they're going to find product market fit in two years. That's fine. I'm not worried about it. They're going to raise loads of money um, and get to the next stage. I think that's absolutely fascinating. I've never heard anyone say say that, that actually what the seed investor or pre-seed investor should be looking for is, is the, does my capital create a route to product market fit? within two years, three years, and, and, and at that point... That's what they're thinking. They just don't say it. It's very weird. No one says that. I don't know why. No one says that. No one yeah, says it in the feedback. That's what they're thinking. Right, so why is that? I mean, that makes no sense. That... But again, it, again it's, because, it's because it's really hard to tell a founder that they don't believe... Because you're not saying... Because you're, you're saying, I don't believe you as a founder are going to reach this product market fit. You're not good enough. Right? That's pretty much 90% of the time when you get rejected... As a, found, as, a, as a founder in any stage, it's, I don't believe you're the founder to do it. And most of the time they're going to be wrong, right? Because they spent 30 minutes with you or not even spent minutes with you. They just looked at your pitch deck. Um, but it's one of those things where, yeah, it's just really hard to be just brute kind of you're not good enough vibe. So that's why they resort to this unfortunate, and I did it myself and I'm very annoyed that I did it now, but um, this kind of generic rejection of literally a copy and paste of PowerPoint, you know, bullet yeah. points. Okay, so I think when we first talk and connected, you introduced me to the concept of solo capitalists. I hadn't heard it before. I think I think that was in our first in our first conversation a few weeks ago. Sure. Do you think that yeah. they are important in this kind of breaking the cycle? Because the the solo capitalists, I think, is a very 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 interesting evolution. And again, I think it's you know the US is way ahead here. Um, mm -hmm. that, but someone you know who has the capital to be able to deploy at the possibly at the same, if not higher quantum than a VC, but has a dis distinct point of view and expertise that they want to back and facilitate. That's a really yeah. interesting um, uh, evolution or innovation in the space, right? In, in like what we're saying. 100%. And look, most of the time, um, apart from, for example, Harry Stebbings, 20 VC, but a lot of the ones in the US, for example, they actually came from just amazing angel investors, right? Who just wanted to institutionalize their angel investments right and angels themselves as investors they're really they well, the way they think about themselves is they are talent people they're talent scouts right they find the best founders so they are you know a step ahead of vcs in terms of this kind of thing we're talking about of founder tech of i'm just very good at finding founders and, and thinking on the founder end right um so they're kind of even a kind of i guess they're already the angels are kind of already in that kind of innovation aspect so yeah this is amazing from that point of view because for the most part it's angel investors who are being able to institutionalize and be able to put in a lot of money but still thinking of in the right way of just founders i'm going to spend more time with them i'm going to make sure the metrics around the founders is make sense um and you know not just give them bad rejections and then that second point 100 percent is i'm gonna you know i as a solo capitalist fund when you're when you're investing into something it's not just we're gonna give loads of money it's we're going to put a little bit of money into you. We're probably not going to be on your board. However, we're going to be the most value add we any of any investor, whether that's connections, whether that's expertise, whatever it is, we're going to be the most value add cap person on that cap table. 
And um, I think that's that's really exciting and definitely an innovation in the market. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think it corrects lots of the imbalances we're talking about, because if someone does have a very, very deep sector point of view, as ideally being a founder themselves or has a kind of, you know, a track record of backing things in that space, it enables their, it enables them to do two things. One, allow their instincts and all the, you know, the people dynamics that we talk about to be genuine. But also, in a way, they, they don't want inefficiency, so they'll use the tools because they re- recognize they already have value and sort of, as you said, un- almost unfair value to start with. So they're not threatened by levering out that asymmetry and using tools and just they, all they want to do is make the connection between the founder and the investor better again one of the fundamental principles it seems of founder tech so um i'm, I'm just aware of our time um do you want to talk about your where, where you are now in relation to all this and anyone listening to this like how they you know how they can and should connect with you at what stage do you want to just talk about that before we wrap up yeah sure so um i've spent the last year helping founders fundraise from pre-seed to series a um now got to 80 million dollars that i've helped founders fundraise amazing which is amazing um i've released recently released a course which is all around the framework that i've used to help those founders raise uh called the fundraising founder framework which is a great way to understand how my thinking works around fundraising and how you can use them to um you know make your fundraising better I always say that, you know, again, one of the one of the big parts of fundraising is connections, right? Because it's a people's business. So I always say that you should be reaching out to me six to 12 months before you even think about fundraising and um, before your fundraising is going to kind of happen. Um, and you want to get to a point where you're building these connections so early doors that once you officially fundraise, people are chomping at the bit to kind of speak to you and they already know you and trust you. And it's a great way to actually um, get these kind of meetings whilst you've got the power of saying, I'm not fundraising. I just want to chat to you. Um, so I think that's my first one. And then after that, I also do one-to-one uh, advisory on fundraising from everything from building a CRM to general invest advice points to how to help you with your pitch deck and storytelling to term sheet negotiation, etc. However, um, so that's, that's kind of how I work. The best way to reach me is uh, Gian Sierra at, in LinkedIn, and then also at guiansira.me, which is my my website. And can I just ask, what's the commercial model for those things? Do you take equity? Is it, is it, is it different for each product? Yeah, so um, I, I want to keep this as simple as possible for founders. So my course is fairly cheap at $199, yeah. and it allows you to get pretty much my framework, which you'd be spending probably two to three hours of me at a time, maybe even more. Um, that's the reason why I made the course. Um, and then once you've done the, the course and you can understand my thinking and you want something more personalized advice, either on the framework or on the other things, like I said, then it's 250 pounds an hour from there. Great. Um, we'll put all of the, the, the links in, uh, in the show notes and we will finish as we do with everyone with APIs. So anything that you read, any, any person that you like, uh, could be on LinkedIn, uh, any TED tour, anything like that, just a couple of things would be great that, that just kind of have, have informed and are informing your perspective. Sure. So I'll say three things. I said the first one, which is a book. And for me, in the, in the same way that I always talk about how founders is the only controllable part, hence why investors care so much about them. For you as a founder, it's pretty much the same for the employees, right? Everything else is going to be uncontrollable. The only thing you can control is who you hire, who you hire and the culture that you set into place. Yeah. So one of the most revolutionary books that i think which is actually i think slept on and is not read enough and not talked about 
is um, from Ben Horowitz, who everyone knows, you know, founder of A16Z, uh, one of the biggest venture capital funds in the world. Yeah. Uh, he, he made a book called uh, What You Do Is Who You Are, which is, yeah, it didn't do as well as is the hard things about hard things, which everyone's probably read. But this book is all around how do you think about culture? How do you build it? How do you hire in the right way? And I think it's one of the best books ever to when you're thinking about scaling a company. And if you can push those conversations with investors and force those conversations out in terms of how you're building your company and how you're thinking about your culture and your hiring and, and everything, investors will love you for it. The second one is um, a founder that I, I I really love, but um, also shows the, the the power of domain expertise and founder brand of, of building credibility instantly with people that you've never met, right? And, and getting to that point of where an investor is not just switching you off with generic, right? And that and that lady is called um, Andrea Bershowitz. She's the founder of Vera Health, which is um, a founder all around menopause. Now she has a TED talk, which which has I think one and a half million views all around menopause, and she is considered the go-to person for menopause. And I know for a fact with when she was fundraising and and she successfully fundraised um, actually with Octopus. I wasn't there at the time um, when she did, but she put that at the back the, the bottom of her emails every time she built the credibility where anyone who knew about menopause said you have to speak to her and it's just a great example of a founder that has built the fa- her domain expertise in such a way that builds credibility with everyone she speaks to and she doesn't need the connections and she can be an underrepresented founder as, as a female and be incredibly successful from it great um i would say those two mainly that's awesome. Those are those are perfect. Um, yeah, re- really interesting. Um, founders building their own brands is a whole other conversation, but really interesting. Yeah. To, 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 um, to... It's a part of my course. But oh, yeah, okay. definitely. Well, that, it's, yeah. uh, it's very, very important. Very important. Like very, uh, not something again spoken about very often. You know, of how you do I... that, and it takes time and to build that credibility. It's not, and it's 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 not talked about enough. But it's something again you can control, right? You can influence that. Um, listen. It, a- absolutely fascinating it's, it's been really great to talk to you i think we've covered like more new ground as well like some of the things that have come out are hugely insightful and, and again uh, some of the things really echo the same you know the same themes in this conversation so thank you for being on the uh founder tech decoding podcast it's been a really great chatting thank you for having me dan yeah it's been it's been great talking